we're looking at Jesus' parables, and a parable is a story with a twist. So it's a twisted truth. A twist which reveals something about God and our relationship with him. This morning, we're going to look at the builder and the king. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Great crowds are still following Jesus as he's nearing Jerusalem and the end of his life. And what he does when he turns, he turns and addresses these great crowds following him. And he emphasizes the cost of discipleship. He needs commitment from disciples, not just numbers to follow him, but those who follow him, realizing the commitment that comes with following him. The call to hate is pretty extreme, and it can't be, it can't mean literal hate, because there is a primary command which says, love your neighbors. And so how can you love your neighbors and hate your mom and dad? So we have to unpack, what does he mean by that? What does it mean when he says, you got to be willing to hate your mother and father, your wife, and your children, and and that's what we'll try to figure out. Um, the saying needs to be set in the context of the first century. We got to understand kind of what's happening with these people that are following Jesus, and what will happen with them in the future. At this time, a Jewish person who made a decision for Jesus to follow him, in doing that would alienate their family. So they, in choosing to follow Jesus, in the first century, if you're a Jew, what will happen, your family would hear about it, and they would turn their back on you because that was something that didn't sit well with the government, didn't sit well with other people. Um, if someone desired acceptance by family more than a relationship with God, if you valued family over God, you probably wouldn't make a decision to follow Jesus because it would mean having to kind of turn away from your family. To hate one's life is to choose to carry a message that would very, not possibly, almost probably sever family ties. Today, people become Christians for a lot of different reasons and they become followers of Christ, and it's not really culturally um, frowned upon. Some versions of it might be less popular than others. I guess if you look in today's world, a, a contemporary kind of thing maybe be a Muslim country. So if you live in Iraq or something like that, which is primarily a Muslim country, and if you become a Christian in Iraq, your neighbors and your family aren't going to like it. That's what we got to understand. That's the kind of situation that existed in Israel in the first century. Um, so in other words, um, to be associated with Jesus would probably bring a negative reaction from neighbors and family. There could be no casual devotion to Jesus 
in the first century. Uh, to carry means to carry an object or bear a burden. There's a verse in the Bible, it says, carry your cross, and we all know that the cross is an instrument that's going to kill you. And is he saying that everybody who comes after him has to be a martyr, has to willingly allow themselves to be killed? Um, I don't think so. Look what it says. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. You can't kill yourself over and over and over and over and over again. It can't mean literally that you have to, you have to die. What does it mean to carry your cross daily? The picture of cross bearing is a willingness to bear a burden, to experience something that you wouldn't really want to experience if you had the choice. And in the context, the burden that they would bear, among other things, is because of vertical connection, the willingness to suffer horizontal disconnection. That's what it means to carry the cross and bear the burden, knowing that if you follow through with this decision to follow Jesus, your family is going to start to keep you at arm's length. And family really is tied up with life, isn't it? Now, when you think of what is it that really makes life life, it's relationships, isn't it? A lot of times family relationships. And if you were going to experience something that was going to cause family to that would be a very painful thing. And in the context of the first century, that's what it means to bear your cross, to carry it. It means that in following, you're going to experience people doing this. And to be able to bear the cross daily would be to continue to follow through and follow after Jesus. Um, what would happen? Um, actually, Jesus uses a, uh, he says a couple things with respect to um, this kind of dynamic, and, and what we're trying to figure out is what existed in the first century, not necessarily today. Here's what Jesus told his disciples. Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I thought he did come to bring peace, but with respect to some people, he didn't. And that's what we need to do. We need to zero in on who is he talking about? As he's talking to disciples. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You know who Jesus is talking to there? His disciples, the ones he selected out. And what he's telling them, guys, uh, I have good news and bad news. You're my disciples. That's what Jesus saying to his disciples. The good news is you're my disciples. The bad news I'm not here to make and to give you a nice life. What's going to happen? Your fathers are going to turn against you, and your mothers, and your sisters and brothers. And they were going to experience what Jesus himself experienced to a certain degree. Um, because of the rejection that would be experienced down the road, it was necessary 
to count the cost of discipleship. And again, what we're thinking of, especially in the first century, it was necessary to count the cost because there would be a cost coming down the road. Um, and then Jesus uses a parable to tell the story and to kind of underscore what it is he's trying to say. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower or a garage. <laughs> Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Randy talked about we had a a place where we could keep some of the tractors and stuff that now we don't have that property anymore. So now if we don't build the garage, they're going to sit out. It's not very good to let those things sit out. So we have to try to build a garage. And it wouldn't be very smart, would it, to, uh, this is the point of the thing, so if uh, those in, responsible for the choice said, let's build a garage. And so they pour a slab and put up the walls. Maybe a roof, but then there's no shingles, no garage door. If you walk by, if you went by and saw that, you know, that's Hope Community Church, you know what they did? They started to build a garage and they didn't even figure out how much they needed to build the garage. You know, you know, it wouldn't reflect very well on us as a church, would it? If we didn't sit down and really count the cost, what's it going to take to finish this thing? And uh, that's what uh, Jesus is pointing out. It says, if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. <laughs> this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, a tower in that sense, it was maybe a little bit like a garage, but bigger. It was a place that you could keep tools and implements. You could keep crops. And so in a personal home, you built a tower so that you could keep things in it. Before building, a wise person would calculate the expense. How much is it going to cost me to finish this thing? The result of not counting the cost is that the building will stand unfinished as a monument to one's foolishness. People would see the unfinished edifice and snicker. You know, it's kind of wave their head. The word describes snicker. It's, it's the way they looked at Jesus when he was on the cross. Kind of like, Look at this. They didn't understand what he was doing on the cross. They felt like he was a failure. You know, I look at this guy. He says he's the Messiah. Now he's dying. And they didn't get it. That's, it's the same thing. Um, Jesus uh, called his disciples in order that he might entrust a message to them and send them away to give it to someone. Here's the way it would work. I've explained this before, but if you were a kid growing up in Israel at the time, there were three levels of education. There was a primary level where from age six to age 10, you would go to the synagogue every day during the week. And, and then you would learn. And what you would learn is the, and we've talked about this before, the first five books Of the Bible. And that's what you would learn. And by the time you were age 10, you would have memorized them. Then, if you were a really good student, if you were a really good student, and then you would get to go to the next level, which is from age 11 to 15, then you would learn the rest of the Old Testament. And you would, you would have it memorized. 
if you were a really good student at that level, then you were, you're 15 at the time. And what happens, you try to hook up with a rabbi. Now, a rabbi is somebody who has spent years and years, and so say if you are really smart, and you hook up with a rabbi, here's what you get to do from age 15 to age 30. You spend 15 years sitting at the feet of that rabbi, learning to think the way he thought. And the process of learning what the rabbi knew was called carrying the yoke of the rabbi. And it was the obligation to learn to think and act as he did. In fact, there's some stories that they took this so literally that it's, it's a little bit like that um, walk this way. If you remember that, I forget what movie it was. And, you know, you know, he goes like this and the rest of them are going, you know, okay, I guess I'll walk this way. And it, it, it's funny, but that, that's what happened. You were supposed to be exactly like the rabbi. And so if the rabbi's walking with a limp, you see the disciples coming along walking with a limp. And it's a little bit, that's a little strange. But what they did though, they, all day, now they didn't have a lot of books. So what they did, they listened to him all day, day after day after day. They had really minds, and they learned to know what he knew. So by the age 30, they were able to reflect what the rabbi knew. Jesus spent three years, but he gave the disciples in three years what they needed to understand, and his purpose well, it purpose is, his, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. This was when, um, when Jesus died, he rose, he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. When he appeared to them, I want you to go to this mountain, and I want you to stay there. And I'm going to show up. 40 days later, he'd, and over the course of 40 days, after he died on the cross, people were snickering at him. They didn't snicker very long. By the time the weekend was over, he was out of there. Let me tell you what happened. This stone had been rolled away. This stone is a two-ton stone that seals this cave entrance. They would have wrapped Jesus in these strips of cloth, and from his head, his face exposed from the neck down. So he's like this, and he's inside a tomb. They put this stone against it, and they put a seal so that nobody can break it. And then when Jesus rose, this stone was out of the way, and the grave clothes were just lying there. And you know, some people think that Jesus, and this, some people, again, it's really hard because Jesus said he was going to rise, and he did. But some people, they said, oh, he couldn't have risen from the dead. So what happened? And so think, you know, he resuscitated. Now, this is really what some people think probably happened. The tomb was cool. And so Jesus must have woken up. And then he somehow got on his feet, hopped over, you know, to the stone, and, you know, with his head, moved a two-ton stone. That, that doesn't make much sense, does it? You know what happened? He rose physically from the grave. Angel threw the stone out of the way. You know what that tells us? 
Jesus reveals God. And what he says about God, even the Bible says all kinds of things about God. The Old Testament says a lot of things about him, things that don't sound very nice. You know, a lot of things are chalked up to God in the Old Testament. We can't know God through the lens of the Old Testament alone. Now, there's some things we can learn about him, but it's like seeing God's shadow. You can learn some things from a shadow, but you can't see a face, can you? You know, is there, see my shadow maybe down there? You can know some things about me from the shadow. You might be able to know that I don't have a bunch of hair. You know, it kind of looks smooth up top there. Uh, but you can't see my face. And the same way, the Old Testament revealed God's shadow, but not his face. How do we know what God likes and doesn't like? Read about Jesus. What does God like? He likes what Jesus likes. What makes God angry? What made Jesus angry? How does God react when people are hurting? How does Jesus react when people are hurting? How does God feel about arrogant spiritual people? They kind of think they're better than. How did Jesus respond to that? Again, so that's what we can know. We can know God because Jesus reveals him. Uh, the 11 disciples came to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You know, does that comfort you? These are the disciples. These are the ones, the 12. They saw him, but some of them think, eh, I'm not convinced. You know, do you ever wrestle with doubts? I guess we're in good company, aren't we? They lived with him for three years. And they were at a place, after he rose from the dead, they saw the grave clothes, they, they saw him walk through the wall, but some of them doubted. I guess it's okay for followers of Jesus to deal with doubts. That's good news for us, isn't it? Um, it says that uh, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know what the, the, the kind of the, the deal is with a builder who didn't count the cost? What that means with those Jesus is speaking to? A builder who is not able to finish is kind of like a disciple who learns and doesn't leave. A disciple who learns and stays home. What would have happened if these disciples learned and stayed home? You know what would happen? We wouldn't be here. We'd have nothing to talk about. Because these disciples went to non-Jewish Gentile territories, and they told people about Jesus. And you know the reason, and because they did, we have the Bible and we have records of what Jesus said. That's what their purpose was. When um, to learn and not be willing to leave family behind is like the builder who really doesn't finish the project. Uh, why am I saying this? This is a hard passage. Frankly, this passage is not for the shoulders of sheep. This is for shepherds. There are some passages in the Bible that are meant, that are applicable to those in 
and in the first century, positions of spiritual leadership. For them, it's important that in going, you're going to need to turn your back on family. There are verses in the Bible that are shepherd verses that are heavy and verses that are sheep verses. Is this a sheep verse? No, it isn't. Those of us who are followers, regular followers of Christ, I don't think he's telling us that we need to hate mother and father because that just doesn't make sense. But if in the first century you're a disciple and he's going to tell you some things and you're going to get in trouble when you say them, you're going to need to be willing to turn your back on family and they were willing to do that. And because they did, that's why we're able to know about Jesus 2,000 years later. Um, in addition to a farmer building a tower, Jesus talks about a king going to war. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while his the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, a king deciding to go to war is probably going to figure out if he can win. Right? That just makes sense. And so if this king has 10,000 men, his, his enemy has 20,000. Not a real smart idea to just sashay into war. And what that king will do, he will send a peace delegation. I know we have an issue. I've sent this delegation, this peace delegation. And the peace delegation comes to the king when he's way away. He hasn't spent a long time traveling. And they're going to say, okay, what's it going to cost? We don't want to go to war with you. What's it going to cost? And they'll arrange for terms of peace. Um, that's what um, Jesus is saying. So they will be his peace ambassadors. Now, again, God's kingdom is very powerful. But you know, it's interesting. Even though we've done things that are displeasing, Jesus came so that the disciples he sends will bring a message of peace. God is not at war with you. He's not at war with you. He sent his disciples to let you know, I want a relationship with you. That's what, that's what the disciples came. That's what he told them. That's what he wanted them to reflect to the world and to Gentiles like us, non-Jews. Um, there's a verse, one of my favorite verses, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. When Jesus came, it wasn't because he was aware of your sins and he was saying, hmm, he wasn't counting your sins. God didn't send Jesus because he was counting your sins. He sent him because he wasn't. He never would have sent Jesus to create a relationship if your sin, again, is sin an issue? Yeah, sin's an issue, but you know what God did with, with respect to your sins? He talked about this before. Our sins kind of are a barrier and if this is, if I'm God and, and these are your sins, these stand in the way. You know what God did? I want a relationship. 
And this doesn't get in the way. That's what he sent Jesus to with the message of reconciliation. What would happen if you believed that? That God's relationship with you, he's not really looking at you with a big bony finger. He's not. He sent his delegates to, to say, I want peace with you, not war. You know what God says to you? I am not your enemy. Hmm. In fact, I want a relationship with you. That's why he sent his son. Um, would you agree with me? A peace delegation that never goes to the country that the king wants to establish peace talks with, if that delegation is not willing to travel, they have a message of peace, but it never arrives. That's not very... That's like a builder who started the project and didn't finish it. Or it's like a king that went to war, really didn't pay the price. And so that's why Jesus wants these disciples to say, it's going to be difficult. Your family's going to turn on you. But the fact is, there are a world full of people that need for individuals who represent God to say, God wants is not your enemy, and he wants a relationship. He wants to reconcile with you. That's what God wants. What would happen if you believe that more? That God doesn't hate you. Um, applications, we, as we close, three of them. Uh, they actually were similar applications to when we looked at the parable of the sower. Number one, uh, be thankful. Be thankful. Thankful for what? Jesus dispatched his disciples with a message, a message of reconciliation. I don't think we ever really finished that, did we? I want to look at the... God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Reconcile means to establish a relationship, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We employ you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That was the Paul's understanding of the message that he was tasked to bring to people like us. Gentiles. Paul, we're Gentiles. The world was divided, Jews and Gentiles. We're, unless you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. And what we are told, that that's the message. Message of reconciliation. God is extending a hand to you. Not a finger, but a hand. What's a relationship? Uh, so, be thankful that you've been given the message of reconciliation. That's what God wants, and we know it. Number two, be thankful and be mindful. We've talked about this. We're not going to belabor it. But the first century Jewish Christians, the disciples originally, they paid a dear price to be a peace delegation that came to our doorstep. These peace delegates dispatched by God paid a price to bring the message of reconciliation to us. They were hated by their family, and yet they were willing to go because they loved Jesus and they wanted to bring the message that, um, 
that they did indeed. And we've said this before, the message of reconciliation, the gift of eternal life is a gift. It's entirely free. As we've said, postage and handling was really costly. Really costly. People left their whole life behind them to follow Jesus so that we could, and they were Jewish Christians. And they're our older brothers. We wouldn't know God had they not gone, come to tell us about him. Um, third, be useful. Be thankful. Be mindful. Be useful. Really like the third step, a uh, fifth step prayer, excuse me, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we'll close by uh, looking at it. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I ask that you might remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. You know what God wants from us? This side of eternity doesn't want us miserableness, but it's not really about happiness, joyfulness, holiness. You know, it's about usefulness. God uses those who put themselves, now, we're not going to be martyred. We're probably not going to be hated by family, but there is a cost to being used. And so if this is, as we close, if this is a prayer that you could get your arms around, um, I'll repeat it again. And you repeat it silently in your heart to God. If it reflects kind of what you think, let's pray. If this works for you, you pray it to God. Pray it slowly. My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Glad you were here. We'll talk about, we'll continue on with Twisted Truths. Enjoy the day. It's going to be in the 50s today, but it's not going to stay in the 50s this week. Is it? I'm glad you came.